You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he is also the Founder and Executive Director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies and is on the core faculty at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Following the time of the Apostles until the Constantinian Revolution at the start of the 4th century, the pre-Nicene or Antonicene Church was a fertile field of theological development as the people of God spread across the Roman Empire. They had no councils or ecumenical creeds that provided strict tests for orthodoxy, and their emperors were not a source of ecclesiastical appeal. At best, Christians hoped that these emperors would simply ignore their presence. It would be a mistake, though, to think that during this time it was only theological matters that required attention. Aside from the guidelines provided by Paul for church leadership and some of the intercongregational anecdotes we see in Acts, many of the fine-tuned details of church life remained open-ended. In his book, The Greco-Roman World, James Jeffers makes the following observation about the structure of the early church. Quote, it appears that the churches borrowed from the society models that they considered compatible with their identity as Christians. It makes sense that, in putting together an organization from scratch, the early Christians would use and modify forms with which they were familiar. Using forms of organization from the larger society, at least superficially, had another benefit. It made them less conspicuous in a society that did not recognize their right to meet. But we must consider whether and to what degree the use of these forms affected Christianity itself, end quote. And Dr. Haken, that final line in particular is really important as we orient ourselves for really everything we're going to be looking at this year. If we are to understand how the church was impacted by its imperial Roman milieu, we first have to know what that looked like. Could you give us a brief overview of the Roman political system and how it came to be? Yeah, I think what you're pointing out here is the fact that the early church, to understand the early church, you really need to have a good understanding of the kind of Roman, Roman Greco-Roman cultural context. Um, and not only the early church uh, in the Roman Empire, but also outside the empire, um, in places in Africa and Asia, again, it would be helpful uh, for the student of this period or the a person reading about this period or studying this period to have some idea of the larger kind of context in which these early Christians um, developed their faith and uh, sought to witness to their faith. Um, the Roman Empire, as uh, the early church knew it, um, had developed out of the chaos of the first century BC when what was uh, the, the Roman Republic in which um, the various aristocratic families that dominated the Roman world, roughly five to six hundred of them, um, found themselves engaged in um, fratricidal civil war that really lasted for the best part of 80 years, um, beginning with Sulla and Marius in the first part of the first century BC. It ran all the way down to the uh, wars uh, between Octavian, um, who becomes known as Augustus Caesar, and Mark Antony, one of uh, Julius Caesar's lieutenants. And um, <clears throat> this period saw the destruction 
of the power of those families whose locus of authority was in the Roman Senate and brought an end to what we call the Roman Republic. Um, and so the, the world in which the early church develops is a world of imperial dictatorship. It's a military dictatorship. The power of the emperors depends upon the army. And when the army loses confidence in you, you're, it's game over. Uh, you have examples of that, for instance, with Caligula, um, who was uh, uh, murdered by the Praetorian Guard after about four years of his um, disastrous megalomaniac reign. Um, and this would be true as a kind of para paradigm, uh, especially you see it in the, in the fourth, third century, which is really a century of a major political crisis. And so the early church then develops uh, its witness and etc. in a context of dictatorship. And um, it's one in which the, she finds herself uh, at odds with that uh, state. And thus the, 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 the reality of what we call persecution um, is, a, is a significant factor in the development of the early church's identity and her experience. Yeah, thank you. That's a great overview. Um, I'm wondering if there's something specific you could speak to that I've heard you talk about before, which is the nature of patrons in Roman society. What were the patrons? Who were the patrons? And how do you think this might have impacted the structure of the early church? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I, I, I learned pretty quickly as I began to teach was, particularly in, among PhD students um, at Southern, um, in the early days, I would ask questions like, so let, let's talk about the, before we even get into looking at the, 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 the thought of the fathers and the patristic theology and etc. Um, let's talk something about the Greco-Roman culture. And I'd ask simply, a simple question. So tell me what you know about patrons and clients. And it became pretty obvious that there were some major features that of the Roman world that most of those students were completely unacquainted with. And that's simply because they had never taken courses in Greco-Roman socio-cultural uh, background. And the, the patron was very much a unique Roman thing. You can't find it in the Greek cultural context, uh, which the Romans so loved and which inspired so much of their own um, world. Um, developed probably out of the... Uh, the need for a standing army that emerged in the Punic Wars of the 3rd century BC, where generals would have soldiers um, who they basically required to spend 20, or even 20 years or more on uh, active service. And the, the reality was that when these soldiers went home to Italy, many of their farms in central Italy or the Italian plains had basically fallen into rack or ruin. And while they were out fighting for the Imperium, their, um, the man who sent them out, namely the aristocrats who controlled the Senate, had basically bought over a lot of those farms and turned them into vast, uh, what is known as latifundia, these vast estates with uh, you know, 50, 60,000 head of sheep, etc. And um, the Further expansion of the empire was going to be an impossibility um, if these soldiers were not guaranteed that they would have something at the end of their service. And thus, there, the, the whole notion of 
generals supporting their soldiers by giving them either money or land, particularly land, that they would have uh, farms that the general would make sure that they received at the end of their service, uh, developed this kind of system of patronage where these individuals were dependent upon the general. Um, and this becomes part of the glue um, of Roma, Roman society. Um, there is no safety net of uh, social welfare. Uh, there are no such things as pensions. And so how do the, the, the poorer sort of Romans, which constitutes you know upwards of 40% of the Roman Empire, maybe more, um, how do they live? How do they get by? And they get by by having patrons, that is, people... Um, in a social level above them, maybe the middle class, and uh, those in the middle class would have patrons above them, those in the upper class, um, who would help them in everything ranging from um, providing medical care, uh, down payments for businesses, uh, ventures, um, etc. And so the patron would supply you with, with help along a number of fronts. The In turn, the client would be of advantage to the patron um, if he needed, say, you know, a wall built on his estate um, or work done on his property, or if he wanted to go downtown to the Senate and um, to look good, he would take maybe 30 or 40 of these men uh, who would have to spend the, the afternoon just lounge, lolling around or lounging around the Agora uh, while he did whatever business he had uh, come for. So um, it was a win-win scenario, and it was very difficult to exist in Roman society without a patron. Now, what happens, what happens when you're a client, what happens when a client becomes a Christian and now finds himself at odds ideologically with his patron, who is still maybe a pagan? Um, that's going to be a problem. And so it's not surprising in some ways that the the, the emergence of the bishop, um, which has a number of causes, but the emergence of the bishop to some degree is a reflection of the so social role of the patron. And bishops in some ways become patrons uh, of, their, of, their, of, their, of their members in their churches. So uh, whether it was a, um, um, a conscious copying or it was a pragmatic reality that developed, uh, the bishop, the development of the bishop, I think is certainly linked to what is part of the glue of Roman society, namely the patron-client uh, relationship. Yeah, I think it was Mark Knoll in his book, Turning Points, where he talks about the relative silence of the early church um, when it comes to their structure. But by about the middle of the second century, the office and role of bishop has really been pretty well established. What are your thoughts on that? What What are the relationships that these bishops have with one another? Is there any kind of structure in place, or what are we seeing happen there? Well, I think initially it's a it's a very loose structure um, in the sense of um, there is a equality between bishops. There's no the hierarchical arrangement that you find, say, characterizing the Middle Ages, the High Middle Ages, where you have archbishops and bishops. Um, etc. Um, that is not part of this early Christian experience. 
But by the time you move into the 4th century, again, you don't have archbishops, but you do have bishops like Cyril of Alexandria um, or the bishops of Alexandria, Athanasius prior to Cyril, um, who have under their charge 30, 40, 50 churches. Uh, they're, they're bishops, but they're effectively, you know, they have the same sort of um, the size of their authority and their exercise of power um, is similar to a, a bishop in the medieval period. Whereas Augustine, who is the bishop of Hippo Regius, although he has obviously enormous stature as, as his ministry goes on because of his writings, um, etc., um, he is the bishop of Hippo Regius. A church that might have had four or five hundred people. So what we would call, we would call probably in evangelical circles today, we would call uh, Augustine a senior pastor. So you have a man who's equivalent to a senior pastor being called a bishop, and then you know the, along the coast of uh, of Africa towards uh, going east in Alexandria, we've got somebody like Athanasius or Cyril, um, who really is functioning like a medieval bishop with a large number of churches under his authority. So the word bishop then, it, one of our problems is I think we tend to define it from the vantage point of the medieval world. And um, it's, it's a term that certainly in terms of its uh, jurisdiction and breadth of authority, um, it develops. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term that you can't simply say, okay, a bishop is a, a senior pastor. Um, or even that, you know, on the other hand, that he's, he's in charge of a significant number of churches. Um, it's a flexible term in the, in the late, uh, late antiquity. Do you see any bishops at this time or even cities or seats of power that are beginning to gain more or greater influence over the church writ large? We know that eventually Rome really kind of becomes the center for much of Christian life, but is this true in other cities and in other positions? Yeah, um, generally speaking, the, the, the larger the urban setting, the more likely the bishop of that setting is going to be an influential figure. And so uh, the bishop of Alexandria, the bishop of Carthage, um, the bishop of um, Antioch, uh, that is Antioch um, on the Orontes in uh, what is now Lebanon, um, the bishop, or is it southern Turkey, wherever that, well, I'm not sure where uh, Antioch currently would be, um, but the Antioch of Acts 11, where the Apostle Paul is commissioned by that church for ministry. Um, that's the Antioch of Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, the Bishop of Constantinople. Um, these sorts of bishops, uh, because of the size of their their churches which are you know they'd have a number of churches under the authority but also because of the size of the city um, etc are going to have significant influence um, a man who is directing the 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 churches of maybe you know the entirety of alexandria is going to have more influence in some ways probably than a bishop of just a local church um, um, in Libya, you know, for example. So yes, uh, there is the development of uh, what we call sees, S-E-E-S, um, from the Latin sedus, which means the uh, seat, uh, the bishop's seat. Um, there is the development of a number of 
of uh, major Episcopal centers. Uh, usually they, they, they have an apostolic foundation. Uh, Carthage did not, but Alexandria claimed to be founded by the uh, Mark, St. Mark. Um, Antioch obviously had the presence of Paul. Uh, Constantinople would not, but in the way that the Eastern Church develops, Constantine becomes a key figure. So Constantine's basically establishing Constantinople as a, uh, a rival cap imperial capital to Rome uh, would count. Uh, Rome obviously had Peter and Paul, supposedly, uh, and so on. Yeah, that's a really helpful thing to keep in mind that as we hear these terms like bishop, that they are functioning in many ways as we would think today as pastor. And we want to be careful not to ascribe meaning when we see the term bishop in texts to mean something that it doesn't mean. Yeah, I mean, even the word pastor. So let's say, you know, if you're if you're pastoring a church of 25 people or 100 people, and you've got a, a or if you've got a church of 5,000 people, the same term is used. But the, the reality of a, a breadth of influence and extent of authority is quite, quite different. Yeah, I want to now turn our attention to another political force in the Roman Empire, and you actually mentioned it earlier, which is the Roman Legion. And just if you could give a a little bit more detail about what the Roman Legion was, uh, how it was structured, what what was its role in Rome, and what was the Christian relationship to it? Could Christians serve in the Roman Legion, or were they barred from that? Yeah, this has been a very big debated subject um, about the relationship of the Christian Christians in the early church to the army. Um, there has been a strong strain of tradition. Uh, people like uh, Roland Bacon, for example, and some Anabaptist thinkers who have argued that the early church was pacifist in its understanding. And um, various figures are cited to support this, like Tertullian, for example in his uh, book uh, De Corona, and one or two other books uh, of Tertullian. And the argument is that the early church um, would not have participated in the uh, military area of the Roman Empire. Uh, The Roman Empire, as I mentioned earlier, was a military dictatorship. The legion was important. Uh, The legions primarily were stationed at the frontier. one legion that is famous, the Praetorian Guard, would have been stationed in Rome for the protection of the emperor. Uh, These legions at maximum strength would have been around 10,000 men. Uh, They would have had uh, auxiliary cavalry units attached to them, and maybe some also auxiliary units that were mercenaries. Uh, This became increasingly common in the the world of of late antiquity, so the 300s and the 400s. That's not a good sign. When a nation has to use mercenaries to fight their wars, um, for example, you know, what's going on in, in Ukraine with the uh, Wagner Group, um, that's not a good sign that your military is in great shape. And you, you find that. You find that the, the Roman em- Empire is starting to use mercenaries, not as the core of the legion, but uh, uh, playing a, an auxiliary role as archers, slingers, etc. And... Um, so a, core, a legion normally would be about 10,000 men. At least that's the normal strength of the legion. But the reality probably for most legions was somewhere between six to 8,000. Um, 
generally speaking, the legions after Augustus Caesar, uh, Caesar reduced the number of legions and uh, put them all under his own personal control uh, as a way of preventing the resurgence of the civil war that dominated the first century BC. And most of those legions were stationed on the frontier, which meant that if, if uh, the frontier was breached, as it was repeatedly during the third century when the Danube, sorry, the Rhine was crossed by Germanic barbarians, it meant that uh, these barbarian groups, who generally were cavalry, could roam at will to some degree until the Romans caught up with them. And um, the strength of the legion was the legionnaire, the, 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 the legionary, sorry, uh, the, the, the common soldier serving what well, we would be, you know, a private, a corporal in our army today. In fact, at the heart of the legion was the, um, the centurion who was in charge technically of a hundred men, uh, the word sentry uh, being at the base of that term. And these were men who were really lifelong uh, soldiers. They had probably joined or been drafted into the army, you know, in their late teens and had survived uh, into their 30s and 40s. Um, usually hardened veterans, uh, men who knew how to kill and um, were skilled at it and in many ways fearless. Uh, there's a great uh, scene about two century, centurions in uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, how these two men kind of uh, pushed, egged each, egged each other on into exploits of valor um, on the battlefield. Um, that, in that light, and this is just a you know an off uh, comment off to the side. In that light, it's it's very interesting that the centurion plays such a significant role in the accounts of the early church in the book of Acts. Uh, rarely do you come across tribunes or legates, uh, the higher uh, echelon leaders of the Roman Empire, of the Roman military. Uh, they don't feature in the accounts. Um, it's a centurion, for instance, in charge of the detail that, cru that crucified Christ. Um, and it's a centurion who makes the first witness in Mark 15. Uh, truly, this was the Son of God. Um, it's a centurion, Cornelius, who is the recipient of the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 10 and 11. Uh, the centurion who grants Paul favor in the, um, the voyage uh, of uh, the, 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 the ships that take Paul to Rome in Acts 27. Um, the centurion who Jesus praises. Uh, I've not seen such faith in, in Israel. Uh, when uh, Jesus, uh, this man asked Jesus to come and heal his, heal his servant and so on. Um, so uh, the whole question, and to just come back to that question uh, about the relationship of the church to the military, um, I tend to lean towards the view, which was to some degree developed by Adolf von Harnack, who is the great, yes, liberal, but great uh, German historian, whose um, uh, massive multi-volume history of the dogma is just absolute, it, it's, it's, it's a standard reading for anybody who wants to be a church historian. Um, not that he's always right, he's, but he, his breadth of knowledge is, is, is astounding to me. Um, he argues in a book called Militia Christi, uh, the soldier of Christ, that the early church's problems with uh, the Roman world is not so much pacifism, uh, but it's got to do with idolatry. And more recent scholarship has kind of borne this out. Um, the, a number of scholars now have shown that in a, a Roman encampment, whether a temporary one where when the Roman legion was on campaign 
or a more permanent one when the Romans were uh, um, um, involved in establishing a fortress. Um, I think, for instance, of the uh, Roman fortress at Caerleon in, in southern Wales, uh, where I was a few years ago. Uh, very interesting, actually. I was there at, at the time when they were doing an archaeological dig. And uh, it was a basic fortress with um, brick walls, etc., etc., and so on. It was permanent. But what they would do in the, in the heart of the encampment, whether permanent or temporary, is they'd have a tent in which they would have, uh, or a, a building, in which they would have um, um, stashed all of the Roman uh, lead, uh, the, the legion's uh, standards, uh, which the standard bearer would bear into battle. And these standards had depicted on them uh, various uh, uh, depictions of idols. They would also carry the campaigns, uh, uh, kind of items that uh, enumerate the campaigns that the legion had been in involved in. And then obviously at the top was the eagle, which was the kind of, they, these were known as the kind of eagles the, the, for, this, for the standard for the legion. And... Um, they, what what they were what they were doing with this was replicating the city of Rome, and the replicating of the, the city of Rome because at the heart of the city of Rome was a cluster of temples, uh, which were idolatrous, obviously I, I, temples to idols, and thus the, the the problem for a Christian was when he was when he joined the army or was involved in the army was the whole issue of idolatry. Uh, the army was an idolatrous institution. And I think that's a better explanation for the kind of conflict between the church, church's teaching and the army. Um, not so much the, because the early church was necessarily pacifist. Uh, I mean, and there are statements that indicate, uh, say, in Tertullian, his disgust at Roman imperialism. And you even find him in Augustine uh, later. Um, but it's more along the lines of, of um, this problem with idolatry is uh, a significant issue for the early church. And again, you can find witness in, of that in, in Augustine, in uh, De Corona, uh, the, um, on the wreath, which is the soldier's wreath that was given a crown of, um, the soldier was given who had done great exploits, he'd be given a, um, um, a laurel leaf crown and the, the way in which that, the ceremony in which that was bestowed was invoking, of, invoking idols was a problem for Tertullian. Um, there are a number of passages in other authors um, that indicate that soldiers were part of the Roman, Roman army. We have the number of martyrs in the Roman army. Well, if the church had this clear problems with the Christians going into the army, what, what were they doing there in the first place? So um, the army is a very important institution, um, and it'll be the army that Constantine will use to enforce uh, toleration. And uh, all of the, the, the Roman, Roman Empire from Augustus Caesar onwards, as I noted earlier, was a military dictatorship. And that always has to be taken into, into consideration in the background or the development of the church. Now, I do want to go ahead and move into another topic that we're going to be doing a, a future episode on more fully concerning persecution in the life of the early church. Um, 
and we'll be focusing on lethal persecution. But I want us to consider the other the other side of that, um, kind of the political pressures and the societal persecution that they might have faced that didn't result in death necessarily, but would have been felt nevertheless for Christians. And I was wondering if you could just speak to that for us. Yes. Um, I mean, persecution, uh, we always tend to think of persecution as violent and uh, corporal, that it's involving the body. Uh, but there is other forms of persecution. It's ostracism. Uh, the, the account of the Martyrs of Lyon mentions that before the, the outbreak of actual violence, there was an attempt to rid the public square of Christians. Um, there would be the name-calling, First uh, Peter, which is filled with really material on how to respond to persecution, um, mentions in chapter 4, you know, don't be ashamed of them calling you by the name of Christian. And so the, the verbal insults, uh, the mockery, so Lucian of Samosata in his uh, The Passing of Peregrinus, late 2nd century novella, really, um, makes fun of uh, Christians in the career of um, this philosopher named Peregrinus, who eventually immolates himself um, at one of the Olympic Games. But for a period of time, uh, Lucian says he enjoyed uh, the favor of Christians. He pretended to be a Christian leader and made a fortune out of, out of them because they were silly fools. And so the kind of mockery, um, the slanders that were passed around Christians, you know, Christians are guilty of cannibalism and incest. Uh, they're atheists, etc. Um, all these things must have hurt. Um, you know, that they're saying uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, it just isn't true. Um, the, the, the challenge that the early, church, early Christians would have had in times when there was not violent attacks on the church, but slander and ostracism and uh, false witness about them, um, those things would have hurt, and how to deal with them um, would have been a challenge. So persecution ranges as it did uh, now as it did then. Yeah, thank you for that. I was wondering, as we close this episode, if you'd be willing to really trace kind of the broad societal, political, uh, maybe even if there's any military changes that are hab- happening during this period from this nation, first century church up until the Constantinian Revolution at the start of the fourth century that might impact the development of uh, Christian life in this Christian society um, that is forming uh, really as a subculture within the Roman context? Yeah, it's a huge question. Um, I mean, politically, the, 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 the period uh, just basically sees, you know, the kind of power structure that Augustus establishes um, is so solid that it's able to weather some of the you know nutters for emperors and I, I use the word nutter there purposely in the first century you know Caligula you know who um, makes his uh, horse a senator um, Nero who is a you know brutal matricidal uh, individual um, Domitian um, who we're told um, uh, was equally uh, megalomaniac, um, demanding the people who came into his presence addressed him as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. Um, 
it's amazing that the Roman Empire survives these people. Um, you, you have the crisis in the at the um, uh, killing of uh, Nero, uh, the year of the four emperors of sixty nine um, A.D., um, where Nero is being killed, and you have uh, four emperors vying for power: Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and finally Vespasian, or Vespasian, as we probably would say. Um, and the church, the the state weathers all of that and survives uh, to have a golden age in the five emperors running from Nerva uh, to Marcus Aurelius. Um, so you've got you've got a you've got a power structure that is established that relies upon the 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 old republic republican families to carry out the wishes of the emperor, as it were. Um, so that imperial structure really holds. And then the great period of crisis is the third century between the 220s and the, the accession of Diocletian in 284. Uh, you've got about 40 emperors, only two of them die in their beds. So in about 65 years, you've got 40 emperors, most of whom reign two, two years or so, and all of whom is but two die on the battlefield or by assassination or murder. Um, and yet the, the emperor survives. Diocletian is able to, to replant it on a, a firm foundation, and it will survive uh, to the uh, 200 years. It's not until the late 470s. So um, now Diocletian does introduce changes, changes that are significant. Um, they will affect the church because the church is really, by the end of the 3rd century, we, we're not going to get into this in detail uh, in this uh, series of lectures, but the church in the third century is the church is dividing between east and west, and that does reflect the governmental division that uh, Diocletian introduces, which we'll look at uh, in a in a in a lecture down the road or a talk down the road. Um, this is also a period, obviously, in which the bishops start to develop their their power. Um, I think congregational church government is probably still in evidence by the end of the second century. By the beginning of the fourth century, the period in which we will close our talks, um, basically it's become, the church government has become Episcopal. Now, bishops are still voted on by the people. So that's a critical factor to note. Unlike, unlike the development in the Middle Ages, where bishops appoint bishops, and ultimately the, the Bishop of Rome appoints bishops, who appoint bishops. Um, you don't have that at all. The bishop, bishops are appointed by people, as in the, you know, the calling of, of Augustine at Hippo, or the calling of Ambrose to Milan, um, etc. But certainly the governmental structure has become much more hierarchical by the end of the 4th uh, century than it would have been at the beginning of the 2nd century. So that's a significant change. Um, there's also been a refining of the word heresy and uh, heterodoxy. And um, by the end of the patristic period, heterodoxy not only encompasses era in regard to the Trinity and Christology, but also era in regard to soteriological issues. Uh, thus, the Pelagian controversy in which Augustine finds himself fighting. But again, that is also outside the range of our, our um, talks uh, over the next few weeks. 
Beat is co-hosted by Caleb Anthony Neal and is produced in partnership with the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, an historical research center at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that seeks to promote the study of Baptist history and theological reflections on its contemporary significance. For more by Dr. Haken, follow him on his substack at Historia Ecclesiastica. Links are in the description. We'll see you next time on Bead.